the simplest thing is that patients hire us to do three different things. The first thing they hire us for is outcomes. The reason they bring their children to our hospital is they think that we are going to either fix them, save them, or do something which is going to reverse their course of disease. That is the most important thing. And in order to achieve that goal, <coughs> I would submit to you that the most important thing that we have to do is get what I call the rights right, which means we have to get the right patient together with the right providers on the right floors or in the right beds with the right teams taking care of them so they can then deliver the right care that will allow them to get everything that they need for a cure, but nothing in addition. The second thing they hire us for is value. Uh, they are making an investment uh, when they come to us and they want return on that investment. And the question is, how are we going to then deliver that outcome with the most cost efficient and most uh, effective care? The third thing they hire us for is patient experience and family experience. And as a side shoe to that, more importantly to us is also staff experience. So getting those components correct, outcomes, which the rights and the right, making sure we have correct patient family experience and making sure we deliver that at a proper value for the patient are where analytics interfaces clearly with what we do. Now, before I talk too much about how we do that, I want to give you just a couple quick seconds of data about Cincinnati children, since I know most of you are probably not necessarily familiar with us. Uh, we are one of the largest pediatric healthcare providers in the country. We have now around 560 inpatient beds. We do over a million outpatient visits a year. We admit, we admit well over 35,000 patients a year. We have one of the largest research, uh, research enterprises in the United States doing pediatric healthcare research and are the second largest pediatric NIH uh, grant uh, organization and we employ 15,000 people. So when we, when we do that, I want to, I present that to you not to say that this is important, but it's important to realize that we may take care of very little kids, but we are not a little organization. So I think that as you sit in larger organizations or bigger healthcare providers, you can look at this and say, uh, the lessons that we've learned are potentially transferable to uh, what you would need to do. <coughs> the next thing I would, would say is that uh, I'm going to present you with what I think is my most important working hypothesis. And as we start to go forth and say, how are we going to deliver good health care and good health care value, one of the things that we've said and we've worked on in the past has been trying to eliminate uh, or decrease costs of individual items like a, a spinal rod for a spinal fusion or a heart valve or a pacemaker. And my hypothesis is that we are never going to make the strides in healthcare in terms of improving value and getting the outcomes we need by attacking the problems that we have in healthcare on that focused uh, basis. What we need to do is we need to understand that the healthcare platform of the future that is going to need analytics to support it is one that is going to work towards standardizing care so that we get the right things right by delivering the right care, the evidence-based care in the right locations with the right teams. And then while we're standardizing to do that, we can look at individual patients and begin to customize their care based on how that uh, individual patient uh, needs to be treated. So standardization, of uh, basic work and then customization at the level of the uh, 
at the level of the patient. Any prayer on slides? Getting closer. Pardon me? Go to poll question two if that would be easier. Gotcha. Okay, poll question two in your application, session 6B2. Where will the next breakthrough analytic change occur in healthcare delivery? Question or answer A, academic randomized controlled trials. B, patient reported outcomes. C, rigorous standardization of best practices. D, multi-center collaboration. Or E, all of the above. All right, so we'll give this a few minutes. I'll turn it over to Jeff, who will talk us through the results. All right, it looks like some of the responses are coming through, so we'll give you about 30 more seconds. Sounds good. All right, so it looks like the majority think that the uh, change is going to occur in all of these areas. Um, most of you selected all of the above. The, the next one would be in rigorous standardization of best practices, followed by patient reported outcomes. Great, thanks Jeff. Back to you, Dr. Reichman. So we'll get to that uh, toward the end of this, but that question was a little bit of a softball. Um, the, um, what I want to talk about is, is how we tried to blend analytics now into this work. And as we've tried to do this, we've really looked at using analytics in two different ways. And, and I'd like to show you some examples uh, when we get the slides up of how we've actually used that data. But basically, we're looking at analyti analytics to do prediction. We are not using it as a way to analyze what happened yesterday. We're not interested in collecting data, although we do that about what happened in our system. In the past, what we're interested in understanding is how to use analytics to predict the future. And the first way we do that is static analytics, which is a way to take a singular snapshot at a single part of our system and ask a single question. And most of these, in our case, have revolved around growth within the institution and potential needs as they apply to the future. And so at some point, I'd love, love to show you the growth model from that. The second different way that we use this are dynamic type of analytics, which are really where the excitement is at. And this is how have we taken real-time data that we can get as a data feed into a system and use that and roll that out onto platforms which nurses and physicians can use at the bedside in order to both see situational awareness issues where they have potential risks on their unit, but also drive patient care. And, uh, that platform itself is one that is uh, primarily internally built. I'd love to show you what some of the results of that were. <clears throat> so if we go into the static uh, environment first, one of the things that we've used uh, primarily in that environment has been uh, to use analytics that are based on, on real-time data. And so we build these systems putting individual patients in and then use that real-time analytics in order to uh, look at growth parameters, but it also allows us to look at things like length of stay, readmission, 
other factors that affect healthcare which are not static within the environment. And by being able to use this real-time uh, data that is in there, we use a program called ARENA, uh, we are able to then forecast, if you will, what uh, are going to be our needs of the future. Um, I think you heard this morning uh, in, the, uh, t in the talk about the Houston Rockets that data doesn't necessarily help you make that decision, but data helps give you the confidence as you make that decision that you've got something other than an opinion that lets you move forward with big ideas. We, are, we use this type of modeling to model all of our ICU bed and all of our other needs in the hospital so that we can, we can look at a graph that uh, uh, says what is the likelihood that we're going to have a full unit and how many beds would we need and by taking those two we can then analyze with growth parameters what we think would be the appropriate size units to build. Now when you talk about using this data for big ideas and big bets, we are now designing a 500 plus million dollar critical care tower and all of the data to design and build the critical care units is based on this simulation modeling. One of the neatest things about it though is that it also allows you to run what we call what-if scenarios which are uh, opportunities to take a, a unit and say, oh, there we are, finished. I'll zip you right over there. The other thing I should thank him for is finding a picture that looked like I was still 12. Um, <laughs> this, is um, <clears throat> this is great. This is our arena model that we want to run in the what-if simulation model. This is what it looks like when you look at the output of this uh, real-time simulation. And you can see that the different graphs here, these are two, five, and seven year growth parameters. And uh, it then allows you to look at a unit and say, well, if I build that unit with X number of patients, how many beds will I need? But it's an important thing to understand about these models is these models produce data, but they do not tell you how to make decisions. There's a decision matrix behind this that has to be based on the medical care equation to get the rights right and deliver the right outcomes. And in our world, one of our rules for the ICU is we never don't have an empty bed. So we have to live way out on what is the far right-hand side of your curve here so that we can be sure that we are not going to run out of beds in our institution. When you run the what-if scenarios, this is a, a chart that looks at what would happen if we combined units. We run both a cardiac ICU and a pediatric intensive care unit and you can see in the uh, two uh, first gray columns that these would all need individual beds, but if we combine the ICUs in the second from the last column there, we get efficiency and that efficiency improves as we get more rigorous with our need to have an empty bed, which is our medical rule. So we know that we could save building anywhere from seven to 11 beds if we completely combine these units, but this is where the data and the medical decision have to interface because we know that in, not only are we building beds, but we're building competency, we're building skills with using equipment. Every nurse in the, in the, in the ICU is not gonna be able to run a total artificial heart. So that it's really the junction of this data and the medical decision making that allows you to then use analytics to be able to plan what you think is the right thing for the future. Now when you go past the work that we've done with static analytics and you start looking at dynamic analytics, it gets much more exciting. This is our inpatient model we call operational excellence. 
which revolves around uh, very committed and, uh, and uh, empowered teams. But mostly what I'd like to have you concentrate on are really these green dots and the uh, yellowy-orange dots there, which talk about staffing, key processes, situational awareness, and something we call guardians. If you look at this, one of the things we decided a long time ago, if you, if you work on the concept that you want to get the right things right, is that staffing becomes a very critical part of, the, um, of your work. Can you see past that for me? Um, there are a lot of elements that go into staffing which are all very dynamic and predicting this multiple days in advance is very important in order to predict your staffing needs because you not only need to know how many nurses you need but they have to have the right competencies, the right skills and the right ability to take care of the right groups of patients. So we've taken these five different admission streams and trying to build them together with a dynamic model which predicts for the upcoming rolling seven days what we think our hospital census is going to be. This is a snapshot of what that looks like and although you won't probably be able to read this, this is a one-day snapshot out of our seven-day report which looks across the horizontal top axis at all of our different medical, surgical, and intensive care units and then on the daily grid, it looks at actual admissions, it looks at who we think are going to be OR add-ons and ED admission, it predicts discharges, and it then it predicts which units in red here are going to have staffing challenges. If we can then produce this several days in advance for nursing and physician leaders on units, they're able to actively intervene and change staffing in such a way that we can uh, avoid a situation where we have a patient mix that doesn't have the right staffing mix to take care of it. Again, getting back to using analytics to support getting the right patient in the right unit with the right teams at the right time. We've, we've been working on this for quite a while. It's incredibly complex, but we now got it down to the point where on a daily basis, we're good about two or three days in advance to within about one nurse of uh, what we need to have on every single floor for staffing. Now the other thing that helps to support this is a program we call Guardians. And before someone tweets that we don't know how to spell Guardian, um, this stands for Global Animated Risk Detection Interface and Network System, which is our computer people's uh, fun naming of, of things. But this is a real-time program which runs off of either a handheld device. We happen to use iPad minis because they fit in, in people's pockets. But what this is, is this is continuous, real-time data that looks, is built from the patient level, rolls up to units, and then rolls up to the institution, and looks at situational awareness, which is uh, what we consider to be progressive difficulties, patients that are potentially deteriorating, patients that are at risk for sepsis or shock. It looks at safety concerns, patient family experience, and flow-related abnormalities. So that if I run a unit, I can look at that and see active management plans for any patient that is at risk on my unit, and I can see updated data and updated laboratory reports and things to support ongoing care. The other thing we have in Guardians which helps to support the right person at the right place is a separate screen that deals only with flow. And on this screen, you can see that there are several units here, all on A5, which is our hematology oncology unit that day, which are at red, which means they're full. So 
As looking at this in real time, we'll be able to identify which units are filling up, where we need different nursing competencies or skills, or how to transfer patients to secondary areas. This is all, because it's real-time data, it allows our safety officer of the day to have a single snapshot that every child in the hospital is as a safety concern, every child in the hospital who has situational awareness uh, risks, and so we can stay actively involved which, with management of those children rather than being reactive to something that we found later when they start to deteriorate. So what has this done for us? It has allowed us to predict our patient demands and uh, much better, so it, it's helped with staffing. Uh, because we have tried to do ED predictions for admissions, we've now gotten them to be 70% accurate. They used to be about a coin flip. It encourages the, patient, the staff really to predict and document, so it's helping to drive our high reliability culture, which is saying we want to predict and be uh, resilient. Uh, it, it uncovers our scheduling and staffing issues and helps us have a single uh, source where we can do this work. <coughs> So the other thing we've learned doing this is I have a, a patient whose name is Amelia who's had 60 operations. She's 12 years of age. She has uh, se severe uh, cerebral uh, drainage problems as, as well as some other organ failure issues. But when we ask her what's important to you, what is important for you to let us know about taking care of you, her remark was sometimes even a simple procedure for me is not simple. And even though I'm having a simple surgery, it could be a very complex thing to take care of me. And when we put those all together, we said, you know, it's true. All these patients are, in fact, unique. But what she has pointed out to us is I may be very unique as a patient, but the problems that I have are not unique. And you should have standard ways to take care of these so that as you're taking care of me, I know even though I'm a complex person, I'm getting the best evidence-based care. So this has brought us to what we call key processes, and key processes to us are things which, first of all, we know that if we do them 100% of the time correctly, that we're going to have a significantly better result in terms of patient outcome and care. The second component of that is that we actually know how to do these. So we have a very scripted way to, do, to deliver on that key process, and we know that it will get the result. And so these are the sort of things we ought to nail 100% of the time every single day. This is our group of key processes that we have here for the operating room. What I'd like to talk about is one of our safety bundle compliance things or uh, our uh, surgical safety uh, initiative for surgical site infections. Um, this is an interesting problem because when we started working on surgical site infections back in 2005, we had an analytics problem here. And uh, as uh, you heard Jim Collins say this morning, the enemy of great is good. And when we started working on this, in our institution, our surgical site infection rate was around two and a half to three uh, cases per every hundred. Our problem was that was significantly lower than the national average, which was about four and a half to five back in 2005. And so when I went to our provider group and said, we want to work on this, first of all, they didn't understand the mathematics behind it because they don't think of patient care as mathematical equations. Second of all, they said, we're already better than everybody else is. Why are we working on this? Let's work on something else. The enemy of great is good. Um, you can see the end of the graph there, so that you know the end of the story. We started out at about three per hundred for 26,000 cases. Over the course of, of a nine-year period of time, we've done 10,000 more cases, so we do about 36,000 cases a year now, 
in our institution and we've been able to drive this uh, rate down to at the lowest down around 0.4. Right now we're around about 0.9. So the answer to your question about how much improvement could you get here is about 50 to 60% improvement. But how did, we, how did we get there? We got there by saying we don't need to look at numbers, we need to look at patients. And so by focusing on patients, we said, there's 86 patients that had infection, how are we gonna get to the uh, point where we're better? Providers care about patients. Providers don't care about mathematics in general. So what we did was we then started working on patients. As you can see, we were able to decrease our site infection rate to uh, by about 387 kids. When we did the analysis of what this cost, it was about 10 days of hospitalization, around $10 million of uh, cost. And so this significantly improved care. This is our orthopedic group that is circled here in the National Surgical Quality Group. They were able to improve to the point where they were the lowest outlier of anybody in terms of the best care for site infection by standardizing this and using the data and analytics to drive change. And uh, if we went to them and talked to them about why this was important, we could also point out on the far uh, right-hand side there that if you only had a five-day hospitalization, as an orthopedic surgeon, you could do three times as many cases as you could do in the same number of beds if they were there an additional 10 days because of an infection. And if you look at this from a CFO point of view, you can see you're also gonna turn around a lot better revenue. So the analytics here really helped us tell the story and drive the change. Not only that, this is spreadable because this, is a, this has been uh, spread across 90 different hospitals in the United States right now through Solutions for Patient Safety. 60% uh, reduction again across the board in all these 90 hospitals. But the most important thing is about 4,000 children have not had site infections now and we probably saved about $80 million of care. And this is an initiative which is driven by Steve Musing who's one of my partners. So I already did that. I'm gonna skip over the um, thing because I, I wanna talk to you about what is the most important part about what is our future here. And we used to say this was all future healthcare but in fact, it's really not. This is reality now. This is customization uh, after you've standardized. And this is really exciting work that Peter Margolis and uh, Michael Sade have started in uh, what is called C3N, or the Collaborative Chronic Care Network. And they've used these collaborative networks with patients where we've tried to standardize care and then let the patients individually customize by using social uh, interfaces, technical interfaces on uh, mobile health devices. But also, this is the trial of n equals 1 or n equals 10, rather than huge global uh, uh, randomized trials, which allow us to try out new ideas. I want to talk to you about improved care now, which is the Inflammatory Bowel Disease Network. Here's some data that is patient-recorded data that was uh, on that network of a 19-year-old who had had surgery and had nocturnal stooling because of their Crohn's disease. This is highly unpopular when you're 19. This is their log of how many stools they had at night. Now, when we would look at things like that in the past, a clinician like me would get a log like this in the office and we'd look at it and try, couldn't make heads or tails out of it. This is what happened when we combined it with the data that we had in the network, which showed other healthcare interactions. You can see there's two points on there where this patient was treated with amoxicillin for other infections and all of a sudden had decreased stooling frequency, which led to the the interpretation that this was probably a pouchitis and an inflammatory response in their intestine, a change in their antibiotic care, and leads to improvement. Peter gets these thank you notes from people all the time that say, 
the ICN has changed my life more than inflammatory bowel disease. He gets these because this is a change that allows patients to work differently. So I'm going to try and, can you run that video for me? Can somebody start that? We need some sound. What he's, this is a, a little guy that's actually in the IBD network, and he's now an owner of his healthcare. He's also a teacher. What he's got on this video, which you can get off of YouTube, he's actually teaching other kids how to put the feeding tube in so that they understand how he puts his feeding tube in. In the past, this was taught by physicians to patients. It's always a difficult thing. He's going to sit there and talk about, here's how I get the tube out. This is how I smell it to make sure it smells right. I make sure I put the right amount of goop on it. And this is the way that I'm able to put it in. So what he's actually doing now, he's not only engaged as an owner of his health care, but he's actually helping to change the way his health care is being delivered because of the fact that he is uh, not only doing it himself, but he's going to then actively uh, teach other kids how to do this. Once you get to this point and you realize that this is, I think that's it. Can you advance me? Yeah. Once you get to this point, then you understand there's a couple things that are key, which is as these patients of ours become the owners of their own health care, they also begin to own what is the charge or the long-term goals of their health care. We used to go to people and say to them, we want you to do this. But as we start to do this work more, we're going to have to learn to go to patients and say, what do we need to do to help you get to where you want to get? Here's the results of the, uh, of the uh, Improved Care Now network. As you can see off of this, they have now got 78% of children that are in remission. Over half of those have been in remission over a year. 90-some percent of those are... Uh, 94% are off of steroids, they're growing normally, they have normal nutrition. These are results which are not achievable in any IBD single center around the country. And these spectacular results are really the results of these collaborative networks using patient-related information, coupling that with the, uh, with the ability to do small clinical trials and identifying subsets of patients for the correct care. So here's Olivia, this is one of the last patients I'll uh, present to you. Olivia is a young lady that's been in our orthopedic department. She had arthrogryposis, which for those of you who aren't medical, is a problem that develops in utero where they get very severe contractures. And in her case, both of her legs were very contracted. She could not walk. She was in a wheelchair most of her early life. And she kept asking people, how can I uh, get out of a wheelchair? And they kept wanting to operate on her and do things to make it more comfortable for her to sit in her wheelchair. And she finally said to our orthopedic chief, you don't get it. You want me to sit in the wheelchair comfortably. I don't want to sit in the wheelchair. I want to walk. And eventually, she was able to talk him into a partnership where she then underwent bilateral uh, at-the-knee amputations. She now has prosthesis here. She's one of our patient advocates. And she's actually quite tall. Um, and, but the lesson we all learn from here is that if, in fact, we're going to use patients as a way in the, in the future to help us do analytics and help, uh, help plan care, we also have to start asking them, 
what do we need to do and what do you want us to do in order to make your health care good for you rather than telling them what we think they ought to do, which is what we always did in the past. The other thing to recognize is as we do analytics, don't forget to look at the people. A statistic we had for years in our hands was that we knew that 97% of the people that we cared for in our outpatient clinics thought we did a really great job. And we were patting ourselves on the back and saying, geez, how could you take care of a million people a year and have 97% of the people think we're great? When you run the math, for the three to 4% that weren't happy, 35,000 patients in our system walk out of the door every single year and say, wow, I didn't get exactly what I wanted today. If we were practical about that in Cincinnati and said, we're gonna invite everybody that we did not do what they wanted to the ballpark on one day, we could nearly fill the, the Great American Ballpark where the Cincinnati Reds play, and we could fill about half of Paul Brown Stadium, which unfortunately the Bengals are so pathetic that about, those seats are empty and available. <laughs> um, but this is another place where we've taken analytics and we've said analytics are nice, but let's transfer them into real live patients. And I don't think we can show this if we don't, it's all, it's all sound, so we'll, we'll skip that. And what I wanna just finish out on is somebody asked us one day when uh, I was giving a talk with our then chairman of the board, um, are you guys the best in the country at doing some of this? And, I sort of looked at him and I said, I think you should answer that. And uh, he had the best answer I've ever heard, which he said, we don't really know what we're the best at and we don't really care whether we're the best because what we're trying to do is every day we're trying to understand how to get up in the morning and be the best at getting better. And I think using analytics, trying to tie this data in and using data to help drive decisions, which are helping to set up how we're delivering healthcare, is helping us get to the right equation for patients, which is, the right outcome, delivered at, a, at a, the right cost with the right patient and family experience. So with that, I'd like to, uh, to say thanks. Sorry. Sorry about the confusion for you guys over here. If you couldn't see the slides, I'm, I think they're probably online. And thanks for the opportunity. I'd be glad to answer a question. We'll turn it back over to Mike. Wonderful. Let's thank Dr. Reichman again. Just some tremendous work. Thank you for sharing the work that you're doing and some of the insights that you had at Cincinnati Children's. We'd like to share, if it's okay, a few insights from our team. Sai, I'm gonna turn it over to you to share a little bit from the audience. Thanks, Mike. You might be impressed. The most applause came when you sat down. He's not even listening. What, sorry, when I sat down? That's yeah. not unusual. I, that happens at home. But really the most impressive applause moment was when you described the right rights and being able to align the moments and the care that's needed to give the outcomes and allow these patients to own their care that they're getting. And I actually got emotional seeing that video even though it wasn't sounded. Seeing that little boy do that was absolutely amazing. And I wish you could see my screen, but to describe what you're gonna see is as you did the poll response, most of you are beginning your journey on analytics. on analytics. So as a one to three, 52% of you describe that you are beginning this journey. And as we go to the next group, is with the proper analytics and support, how much improvement could be achieved in infection prevention? This is an interesting thought. Right now on a scale of one through five, one being needs help, five being great, Right now it's ranked as a two at 62.5% where improvement could be made. Thanks, Mike. Thank you, Scythe.
It looks like we have about seven questions. Uh, we probably have time to answer three to five of those. Um, I'll go ahead and read from the most voted question uh, submitted by Josh Coramel. What, I had to open up the question here, what, logic, what logistical cultural changes did you have to usher in to get leadership to embrace and react to predictive data? Um, I would start out by saying that we've been extraordinarily blessed by having uh, very senior leaders at the level of the president, the CEO's office, and things which uh, have embraced uh, back in the early 2000s the idea that our key strategy for uh, building and growing a hospital was outcomes and was delivering great care. It uh, never has been a financial uh, strategy and as a con we, we believe that uh, if we focused on outcomes and focused on delivering great care for patients that the, the business would follow rather than trying to design a business that, was, that worked around delivering care. And so I would say that was the first thing. The second thing is uh, we have uh, internally uh, taught a class that's called uh, the Intermediate Improvement Science Series, modeled after Brent James's class here at Dinner Mountain. And uh, so we have now trained in our, in our organization over 500 people in quality improvement and analytics, and they all understand what uh, annotated run charts look like and control limits. And so we've, we've gotten, if you will, now about 15 to 20% of our, uh, of our workforce, and more than that, if you look at it from a clinical point of view, are highly trained in analytics so that it's, it's made the journey easier, but the early days were really an uphill climb. Okay, the second most highly voted question. How long did it take for you to start seeing lower cost from your standardization efforts? Can I come back in a couple years and answer that question? Yeah. <laughs> um, We've seen lower costs immediately that are transferable to patients that are related to uh, better contract negotiation, better supply chain management and things like that, better drug costing. Uh, and we've passed those along. We passed along about 25 to $30 million worth of savings to our families last year. We had $50 million worth of savings across the institution. Our commitment, talk about, uh, you know, Jim Collins talked about uh, BHAGs today, big, hairy, audacious goals. Our, our goal and our strategic plan for the next five years is to decrease our costs by 2% per year and make sure that we keep the cost of patient care uh, at exactly the same or 2% less per year for the course of, over the course of the next five years while we improve outcomes by no less than 2 to 3% per year. So that uh, I think we're, we're just starting to get more sophisticated at looking at how we standardize regimens. We've done that in some of our highly complex procedures now we're starting to do it uh, and going to providers for single payment for a lot of our simpler uh, sort of things. Wonderful, thanks. Well, I think we have time for uh, two shorter answers, I guess, to the, not shorter than those, but short yes answers no. to these two <laughs> questions. Um, this question relates to uh, Mr. Collins. Let me bring this up real quick. Okay. How did you convince the good doers that we need to strive for great? Uh, I think that in sh the short answer to that would be, I, I agree with what uh, Jim Collins said this morning. We, we work under the working hypothesis that everybody in our organization wants to deliver great care every day. So what we try and understand from the good people is if you're good and you want to get to great, what 
what is in between, what's in that interface that we as administrators or myself as a transplant surgeon taking care of patients on the floor, what do I need to do to help make that interface from good to great easier so that you can do the, do the work every single day that you need to do to get there because we really truly believe everybody wants to deliver great care every day. Wonderful, thanks. There's one final question that I just wanted to ask because it was the highest voted question for probably the first half of the session, um, but it might be a longer answer. So if it is and you prefer to take questions offline, feel free to let us know. How do you integrate clinical MD and RN, et cetera, and operational improvement using data analytics? How do you get them into it? How do you, how do you integrate them? So how do, you, how do you get those groups working together is how I'm interpreting the question, I think. Um, let me try and interpret that. I, I would say that our, our base framework for every piece of work that we do in our clinical sphere of the hospital is engaged dual teams which involve a senior or experienced nurse and a senior or experienced physician. Every single floor, every single area in the operating room, our microsystems in the operating room are all run by those people. They are entrusted with the responsibility of running that part of the system and are accountable for the success. And uh, what do we do to support them? We pummel them with analytics. We put things like guardians in their hands so that on a minute by minute basis, they know exactly what's going on on their floors and what to react to. And then we give them all the standard retrospective data like link to stay data or complications and things like that that you'd get anywhere else. But what we're trying to move to is high reliability organizational culture, which is looking and predicting upstream, trying to analyze where our potential risks are and preventing rather than reacting to problems. And that's where things like guardians and other mechanisms like that come in play. So that'd be the short answer. Well, thank you again for your time. Let's give uh, Dr. Reichman a final round of applause. So we're gonna wrap it up. Um, there's a choose one thing on your lessons learned handout that you can use to take note of what you wanna take away from this, as well as you can use that for your CME certification uh, afterwards. So thank you everybody. You have about 15 minutes, a little less than that until the next